Good morning, church. It's good to see you this morning. Um, you know, as I was, uh, you know, sitting in the chairs and just watching different people come up here uh, to take on a different uh, piece of the service, I was just so encouraged, so incredibly encouraged. They're all people who do more than just come up here and say a few words. They're all involved in serving you all, uh, in many ways, behind the, the scenes. For example, Ming, he is our, our deacon. If you forgot who Ming was, he's the one that's doing the marathon. And I was going to do the marathon with him, <laughs> but I didn't want to make him look bad and show him up, so I said, I'll let you, I'll let you show off, or I don't want to overshadow you, like literally overshadow you. Um, yeah, I don't have the right shorts. That's right. That's right. Uh, he, he puts in like so many hours. It's almost like a part-time job. Same with Brock. He's been doing an, uh, this intern thing, assist, uh, you know, um, f- assistant pastor thing for a long time now. And uh, it's, it's, he doesn't get paid. I mean, we told him we were going to pay him, then we didn't. Uh, just kidding. We didn't. We didn't, we didn't tell him that. But he just serves as if he was getting paid. Same with, with Ming and then the Eisners. I mean, we would just throw projects at them, and they just, they just go for it. And so often, it is thankless. But they're not in it for the pat on the back. They're not in it for the approval or the acceptance. Uh, they're in it because they love God, and they love their church, and they love Jesus' mission. And so, so many of you uh, serve as well. Like, you all know uh, Vicki Daniels and Kathy Chang work their tails off, and you don't even know the half of it. And I'm just so encouraged to be a part of a church family that, that uh, lives out their faith where it's real. So I'm, I'm grateful for, for our church family. I really am. And um, all of it, all of the serving that happens here is, is part of our mission. And we say on a regular basis that our mission is to lead people to Jesus, but not just to Jesus. We lead people to and through a life-changing relationship with Jesus and his family. And here's, here's what I've learned. That only happens through suffering. That is integral. That is critical. That is key for us to fulfill our, our mission. It is it's suffering. And it's something that we have to embrace. We will only accomplish our mission if you embrace your personal role as a suffering servant. Your calling in life to follow Christ and your calling to live for Jesus' purposes, your calling to live as a Christian only happens if you are a suffering servant. That's it. And we've been looking at, at, at Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. And this letter, man, it's his most personal letter by far, where he tells us about his passion. He tells us about his struggles, his heart, his heartache, his, his weakness. And he tells us what keeps him going. 
He tells us what enables him to persevere and press on in the face of overwhelming setbacks and hard times and and suffering. You know, he's been forced to defend the authenticity of his apostleship to people in a church that he started. After he left to start another church, these other false teachers came in that were claiming that Paul was not a man of God, that he was not a real apostle. You should forget everything that he said and everything he does say. And now Paul's forced to defend himself in the gospel. And what you're going to find out is if you take your role as a servant seriously, you will suffer. You will suffer. It's part of it. It's easy for people to to imagine, man, if I could just live for God and do this, that, and the other thing, we put together this fantasy, and it's all good stuff, but we never kind of imagine the suffering that comes along with it. It happens. In the passages we're looking at today, Paul summarizes the kind of heart it takes to be the suffering servant that God's called you to be. And what we see is the heart of Paul, a servant leader, a gospel pace setter. So let's, let's read it. We're going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 14, and it says this. Here, for the third time, I'm ready to come to you. And I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. I, I seek you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. I love you. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? Chapter 12, verse 19. Have you been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. Chapter 12, or 13, verse 2. I warn those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. So the context of of this letter, the story, the backdrop for this letter is that these false teachers, once Paul moved away to start another church, these false teachers kind of swooped in and then they throw, throw Paul under the bus. And so he writes this letter and in verse 19 he says, have you been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves to you? And we say, we read that and they probably did too at first saying, yeah, well as a matter of fact, that's exactly what we thought you were doing. And Paul says, well in one sense I was, but my main intention was not simply to defend myself. And at the end of this verse, he says that it is all for your upbuilding. 
If you have the NIV, it says, it was all for your strengthening. He says, I want to teach you. I want to show you. I want to model for you what the heart of a servant leader looks like. And instead of, of writing you know, about some vague abstract principles, I have written you a letter from my heart. And I'm trying to be as honest, I'm trying to be as clear, I'm trying to be as down to earth as I possibly can. Now Paul, he is an example of what it looks like to follow Christ, but he is not impressed with himself, which is why he calls himself the chief of sinners. Humility is central to following Christ. And Paul wants the Corinthians to get his heart, the heart of a, of a servant, a suffering servant, a gospel pace setter, someone who views themselves as a servant leader that God uses to draw people to himself and to his kingdom. And God has put this letter that we are reading here this morning, he has put this letter in the Bible because he wants you to identify with Paul as well. He wants you to follow him as he follows Christ, especially in the midst of your suffering. Especially in your suffering. If you are going to be a follower of Christ, you will suffer. If you are going to be a follower of Christ, you will be a servant. If you are going to be a follower of Christ, you will recognize your need for strength. If you are going to be a follower of Christ, he will turn you into a servant leader, a gospel pace setter that draws Jesus, people to King Jesus and his kingdom. If you are going to be a follower of Christ, you will see your need for Paul's teaching here. So Paul gives us three characteristics of, of a gospel pace setter, three characteristics of a suffering servant who leads by example or shows what it looks like to depend on Jesus. And the first one is this. They have a passion for God. Can you think of somebody right now? That person has a passion for God. He or she is on fire for God. We all usually can think of somebody. When you first read this section of Scripture, it's, it's hard not to be uh, uh, blown away by Paul's passion for people, which is why it's kind of tempting for me to make the first point here, passion for people. And that's why it's tempting. Um, also, well, actually, when you, when you go back and you read it again, that temptation is addressed because you realize that the only way Paul could have so much passion for people was because he had an even greater passion for God. Now, is that something you just muster up? Where you just white-knuckle it and you concentrate real hard and you muster up passion? Well, let's take a look. Look at this passion Paul has. Paul says in his letter to the Philippians, he says, for me to live is Christ. My whole life is about Christ. So for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And earlier in this letter, he says, the love of Christ compels me. Paul was 
so moved by the love of Jesus that his great passion is that God would receive all of the honor, that God would receive all of the glory, that God would receive all of the praise that he deserves. And that right there is what led the apostle to sacrifice for people. And it was God that was in the spotlight and not him. Now, I have a question. For those of you who consider yourselves to be a Christian. My question for you is why? Why are you a, a Christian? What I mean is, why do you call yourself a Christian? Why do you want to be a Christian? Is it because that you think that God will give you stuff? Is it because you think God will bless you with, with things that you need or whatever? You know, a lot of people don't admit that, but underneath it, that's what kind of they're looking for. And then when that doesn't happen, they just say, they bail. They just hit the eject button. God is not Santa Claus. He's not a genie. Are you a Christian because you are seeking God? Because you are seeking his kingdom? You are seeking God's glory? That's not anything that you just muster up. There has to be other things at play here. Maybe for reasons you don't understand, you have found yourself um, seeking God when you never did before. Maybe it started with a problem. Maybe it started with a, a, a hard challenge. Uh, it, it started with a need, a deep need in your life. And so you're seeking God for answers and peace and rest and comfort. And, and those, that's, that's a good thing. That's where most of us start. But it does not stay there. God can use a need to lovingly get our attention. And at some point, we all need to see that our greatest need is for God to forgive us of our sin and to save us from eternal judgment, right? And when you see God doing that for you on the cross, when you are gripped with how much that he loves you, when you are blown away by how much he suffered specifically for you, then a change happens in your heart and in your life you find that you begin to seek first not his gifts, but God himself for who he is. Amen. That's right. That's a I man. It is, isn't it? That's the Holy Spirit who makes that valuable to you, to make you cherish Jesus to say amen. May God guard our hearts against the good news becoming old news. May God stir up our affections for him as we look to the cross and who he is and what he's done for us. See, when you focus on that, you'll want to know him more. You'll want to worship him more. You'll want to love him more. You will want to share him more. You will want to glorify him more. You will want to obey him more. You will want to be like him more, to share his grace and truth, not only in word, but also indeed more. You don't just muster up a passion for God. The gospel gives it to you. So focus on that because it's the gospel that changes everything. So that's the first characteristic, passion for God. Second, 
strength through weakness. It's a common thing that I've said this a million times through this series already. Think when you were a young man or a young woman. Maybe you are a young man, a young woman now. And you imagine what your life was going to be like. You make all these plans in your head of what your family was going to be like, what a spouse was going to be like, or what your career was going to look like, uh, what, your, uh, what your place in life would, would, would be. But then life happened, and now your life is nothing like you had imagined. Not even close. A broken world opposed you and your plans. A broken world sabotaged you and your plans. And now you find yourself in the midst of this broken world limping along and suffering after suffering gets introduced into your life. And that was never part of the plan. No one plans out their suffering. I haven't met anybody who plans out their suffering. Not yet, I haven't. It just happens. And so often our, our response is maybe with a sense of, of uh, denial. We keep fighting and struggling for this fantasy that we had. Or life in this broken world just grinds you down and you give up and you're in despair. And you'll be happy if you just survive and make it through. This is not how I thought my life would be. I did not plan on this being part of my story. But that's life. And Paul knows it. It's true today. It was true back there. And that's why the Apostle Paul knows that we need perspective and then he gives us perspective and he gives us hope when he talks about strength through weakness. It is down to earth and hopeful. And this is throughout Paul's letter. It's most clear when he says, that is why I delight in my weakness, I delight in my insults, I delight in my hardships, I delight in my persecutions, I delight in my difficulties. And he sounds delusional, but he says, for when I am weak, then I am strong. And over and over again, Paul talks about strength through weakness. But now we see something new here. All right? And I hope you see it too. What we see, first of all, time out. Is there a weakness in your life that comes to mind? Is there a suffering uh, in your life that, that comes to mind? Is there, are there some broken dreams that, that come to mind? Is there a strained relationship, a health issue, whatever it is? Is there any weakness or brokenness that comes to your mind? Hold that, in, hold that thought in your mind right Here's the thing. Your weakness and the brokenness that you experience is God's invitation to you to be a part of his great story. Okay? And I'll explain that. Verse 3, Christ is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but he lives by the power of God. 
For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. So Christ was crucified in weakness and then raised in power. And Paul says, likewise, we are weak in him, yet by God's power, we will live with him to serve you. That means that your weakness is God's invitation to be a part of his great story, the greatest story of all time that gives the meaning and the purpose to life. Now, my question for you is what story are you writing with your life? What story are you living? Do you imagine your story ending happy or sad? Is the story that you're writing completely consumed with your career? Or just figuring out how to pay the bills? Or your hobby? Maybe your story is all about your family? Or all about your legacy? Or all about your, your success? Maybe it's all about your fun and, and good times? If someone close to you were asked, what's your passion? What do you live for? What, is, what are you all about? What would the person close to you say about you? Here's the thing. If your story is made into part of God's story, everything's different. Everything's different about you and your life. Because your life is part of the same story that started all the way back in Genesis. It's a story that ultimately ends with, and they lived happily ever after forever. Now, I don't know how God weaves it all together, but your weaknesses, your problems, your frustrations, your brokenness, your disappointments are God's invitation to be a part of his great story. Christ's suffering on the cross was central to the great story of redemptive history to save you and to save the world. And God uses your suffering to advance his redemption to you and to those around you, the other characters in your story. Your suffering is not pointless. It is redeemed in Jesus. Charity Edwards, sitting right over here, not to embarrass you by pointing you out or anything, she uh, recommended a book to me called Suffering in the Sovereignty of God, Suffering in the Sovereignty of God, and uh, several authors contributed to it, um, lots of challenging thoughts in there, one of them was by John Piper, and John Piper says this, everything, everything that Christ accomplished for us sinners, he accomplished by suffering. And everything that we will ever enjoy will come to us because of suffering. In perspective, in light of redemptive history, in light of the gospel, your greatest joy by far 
will light years ahead of everything else. Your greatest joy will be in a part, will be being a part of God's great story of redemption. And with Christ and in Christ, you will know that your suffering has been worth it. It's been worth it. So that's second. Strength through weakness. And third, identity in Christ. Now hang in there with me, because I say identity in Christ, and it sounds a little bit abstract. Let's see if we can break it down a little bit. For example, how in the world, what difference does that make in Christ? How in the world can Paul love people who attack him? How can he genuinely love people who criticize him? How can he love people who misrepresent him and throw him under the bus? How can he love people in the midst of overwhelming hard times and disappointments? How how can he be strong even when he's feeling down and weak? It's easy to miss this because it hinges on that little word, in. That phrase, in Christ, defines Paul's identity and defines every Christian's identity. It is who we are. And in verse 19, he says, we don't defend ourselves to you because we have been speaking in Christ. And he teaches us that the Christian's identity, your identity, does not hinge on what people think about you. Your identity does not hinge on whether you succeed or failure. Your identity is based on the fact that you are in Christ. And that means that by a simple, weak act of faith in Jesus, you have been powerfully united with Jesus in such a way that all that Jesus has is yours now in him. It's hard to wrap your brain around that. Paul says earlier in this letter, if anyone is in Christ, he is, present tense, a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. The old way of defining your identity, of defining who you are, is gone. You no longer get your identity from your performance. You no longer get your identity from your appearance. You no longer get your identity from your status or from your success or how religious you are. All of that's gone. The new way has come, he says. Paul says in chapter 5 that on the cross, Christ, who never sinned, became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God, the righteousness of God in him. Does that mean that that we'll now live perfectly righteous lives? No, it means that in Christ, God views you and treats you as if you were perfectly righteous like Jesus. (laughs) That's amazing, right? Being in Christ means that God views you and treats you as if you were perfectly righteous like Jesus. God's called us to be servants. 
Not only that, God's called us to be suffering servants. Not only that, it's just going to happen that way where you, whether you want it to or not. Serving others is tough. And you know what? Serving others and the, and the headaches that come with it are not worth it. In the world's eyes, you're foolish. You should focus on you. You do you and, you know, you be as successful as you can. Put your head down. Put the blinders on. God's called us to be suffering servants. In the world's eyes, it's not worth it. Because when you take that seriously, the Sibelius have taken this seriously. They've given their lives to serving Jesus. And they're reaching kids for Jesus. And it's super easy, right? Like cake. Like practically in your sleep, you can just use your iPhone from bed and it's done. <laughs> right? Make lots of money. Right? Cruise around in a convertible Bentley because you gave your life to Jesus. You're serving him. No. It can be overwhelming, can't it? It can be exhausting, can't it? It can be heartbreaking, can't it? When you serve, you're going to feel weak. You're going to have fear. You're going to experience disappointment. You're going to be all pumped up about the glories of serving Jesus. And it is glorious, but just not in the way that you think. God refines your desire to serve him. And then you begin to cherish things that you did not cherish before. And you begin to let go of some things that you cherished before because that has been replaced with a passion for God and his mission. Serving is tough. And so here's what I think God is doing. Um, I see especially lately uh, in this season of ministry for our church. I believe, I believe that he is maturing us in such a way that we see that it is critical it is, it is important for us to focus first and foremost on the objective truth of the gospel more than the subjective experience of the gospel like our feelings that we may be experiencing as we serve God with the highs and lows. Our feelings are changing all the time. Our feelings are all over the place all the time. The truth of the gospel never changes. That is our foundation. It is easy for us when serving doesn't go like we thought it would go for us to focus on feeling frustrated or overwhelmed or anxious or discouraged. It's easy for us to focus then on what I should be doing like praying more or reading more or being strong more or what others should be doing and, and what they're not doing. And so when we fail or they fail, we get discouraged or we get crushed. We want to tap out. Instead, God's teaching us to focus on the unchanging objective truth of the gospel. Who Jesus is and the facts of what he has done, that there is what then fills your heart with peace and joy and love. That's got to come first. The good news is that each and every way that you fail, 
Jesus has succeeded perfectly for you. And then on the cross, he died for all of your sin and all of your failure. And as a result, when God looks at you, no matter how badly you feel, no matter how guilty you feel, no matter how badly you are doing, God still says, this is my son, James. This is my daughter, Sharia. My daughter, Kathy and Vicky. You know, this is my son, David, in whom I, I am well pleased. My sons and daughters that I love. And how you feel about it has nothing to do with it and does not change God's love for you or his delight in you. That is the value of being in Christ. That's, that's theology down to earth. You know, we're talking about a gospel truth that does not fail, that does not change regardless of how you feel about it. And it's a gospel truth that will remain true for all eternity. You know what this means? In the midst of your suffering right now, that you're going through, in the midst of your frustration, in the midst of your broken uh, dreams, or your dreams deferred, in the middle of all of that, not even your fear can ruin the perfect peace that you have in Christ. Not even your discouragement can rob you of the joy that you have in Jesus. Not even your guilty feelings can rob you of the righteousness that is yours, that is already yours in Jesus. And this is all true not because you feel it, but because through a simple act of putting your weak and confused faith in Jesus, God powerfully and once and for all time united you with Jesus. And your most foundational identity is in Christ. And nothing, nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not even your feelings. And here's the deal. When we grasp that truth, that never-ending truth, and we, we find freedom and liberty and relief as we repent and as we rejoice in who we are in Christ, sometimes, sometimes, God gives us a taste of that eternal joy. It doesn't always happen, at least not the way we hope or expect, but I know that one day for those who are in Christ, we will experience that joy in its fullness when we are with Jesus in glory. And the taste of joy that we get here and there is what keeps our eyes fixed upon Jesus and the hope that we have for the future and enables us to persevere through the suffering. So let me ask you, how is your heart right now? 
How's your heart? Paul says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. In light of these three characteristics, as I wrap up here, in light of these characteristics, how's your heart? Are, are you in the faith? Some of you say, yeah, I think I had a pretty good week. I'm doing pretty well. I'm not perfect, so, you know, but sure, yeah, I have a servant's heart. Or others of you might say, you know what? I'm not doing well at all. I'm a loser, but I'm going to try harder next week. If either one of those were your response, you need to know that's not the response of someone who is in the faith. I don't know what your heart, only God knows your heart, but that's not a, a response that can, is consistent with someone who is in the faith because our faith will lead us to say that if I'm honest, I know that I am not doing very well. But in Christ, I have his perfect heart of a servant leader. And Jesus' spirit is growing me into the person that I already am in Jesus, this new creation that he made me to be. And he who began a good work in me will be faithful to complete it. That is the response of someone is in the of someone who is in the faith. And so at the center of God's great story, at the center of redemptive history is King Jesus. And he is the only perfect servant leader. His, only his heart has always been on fire with a passion and a love for, for his father consistently. And in his weakness, he always relied upon God's strength and he found his identity not in success and not in power and not in popularity, but in being God's son and God's servant. And the good news is this, that he lived this for you as your representative and gives you the credit for it. That is God's grace. And then he went to the cross and he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. He was crucified in weakness for our sin, our sin of not having the heart of a suffering servant, our heart of not being a gospel pace setter. But then on the third day, he was raised in power. And the moment that you transfer your trust from yourself and put your faith in Jesus, God's Holy Spirit unites you with Jesus in such a profound way that his death becomes your death and all of your sin is forgiven and his perfect record becomes your perfect record and then God loves you and treats you now and forever as he does Jesus because you are in Christ. So, as you focus on this gospel truth, this never-ending eternal gospel truth, then more and more, Jesus will grow in you the heart of a suffering servant, the heart of a gospel pace setter, especially in your suffering, especially through your suffering. And you will grow more and more into who you already are in Jesus. This is the truth of the gospel. This is the power of God. This is the grace of God. And this is what changes absolutely everything. Amen? Amen. Would you bow your heads with me?